so we got to do something about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's go to 1 Timothy, and let's go to chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> And let's stand and I'll read our passage today. We're going to be looking especially at verses 19 through 25, but uh, in context here, let's take 17 and 18 as well. It says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. A couple weeks ago, uh, I was teaching this passage, and I only made it through verse 18. And there have been times that uh, I've just kind of rushed and tried to finish the chapter out. You know, just get it. Okay, all right, we finished the chapter, you know. And uh, Ron Halverson came up to me after that day, and he just, I just so appreciated how you just just ended it for that day. And we're going to come back because I just, I want to know what these passages, what these verses, I I want to dig into these verses. So that was really exciting. Well, I got a text this morning that Ron is in the ER uh, with heart problems and, um, I don't know if it's, I'm not, I'm not a physician, obviously, but um, let me just read what I got from Gail here. Um, we are ER with AFib. They tried cardioversion three times and it didn't work. He's okay for now. His heart rate's coming down a little, but not enough. And then Gail texted me again. Uh, we're with, uh, we're in the ER with AFib again. So we're just going to pray over them. I don't think there's necessarily the panic, but we just care for those Halversons, and they're the ones that went and got the cake for us last week, and they're just always taking care of behind-the-scenes stuff, and and they're asking for prayer from their family today, so we'll pray for them as well. Lord, um, think of Ron, who just wanted to be in this passage with us this week, and uh, and, and just with heart issues, Lord, and, and I'm no nurse, I'm no doctor, I don't even totally understand what all is happening, but, um, but we know that they're in need of your grace and your presence with them in the ER. Lord, we would just pray for uh, you to use this trial in Ron's life to just thrust him even deeper into uh, knowing you, Lord, and serving you, and that you would use this affliction to bring you much glory today. We also would ask that you touch his heart Uh, Just bring a peace, Lord, get it beating properly. We just would ask this for our friend and our brother. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you'll go ahead and have a seat. 
looking at uh, this passage for our elders, uh, kind of breaking it up into three sections. In verses 17 and 18, we have compensation for the elder and how that is both with remuneration and respect. Uh, that is that he would be paid for his labor, that that's a biblical thing, that's an Old Testament thing, that's a New Testament thing, that, that both Moses and Jesus said the worker is worthy of his wages. Uh, those that are working deserve payment for that. And so we talked about that last uh, two weeks ago. Certainly was awkward for me to bring up the subject, but hey, you know, uh, no, it was, it was wonderful to just look at the word of God and to declare how faithful he's been towards myself and our family. Uh, but then not only with uh, remuneration, which means to be, to be paid for your work, but also with honor, with respect, uh, double honor for those that are ruling well, uh, and then those that are uh, especially laboring, laboring in the word of God and in doctrine. And so moving on this week, uh, we see what do you do about accusation? So there's compensation for uh, an elder. There's accusations that come against an elder. And should we make it this far today, looking at ordination, the ordinations of elders. So looking at accusations, verses 19 through 21, verse 19 says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. I'm going to read this again. It'll be our third time this morning. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. It's of the utmost importance to safeguard innocent men from accusation, especially the innocent men that rule the church of God, that oversee the bride of Christ and tend her. Now, while these passages can be difficult to teach as an elder, essentially saying, hey, don't listen to anybody's accusations against me, all right? Uh, I want to kind of bring in a third party and help with this, that it's not just me that this would be coming from. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul towards his apostolic representative in Ephesus, Timothy. But uh, I'm going to bring in the Donald Guthries, the R. Kent Hughes, the Brian Chappells, and the likes of them that are uh, honorable, well-respected dividers of the word of God. As Hughes says, a pastor's character is your most valuable possession. Also, church leaders are highly visible and are tragically vulnerable to the adverse actions of the disorderly, the malevolent, and the ill-willed and whispering gossips. The human proclivity to believe the worst sadly persists even in the church. The human proclivity to just go ahead and believe the worst from the gossips and from the busybodies sadly exists even within the redeemed. John Calvin was reflecting upon his pastoral experience in Geneva 
And he sort of mused in his reflections. As soon as any charge is made against the ministers of the word, it is believed as surely and firmly as if it had been already proved. This happens not only because of a hired standard of integrity is required from them, but because Satan makes most people, in fact, nearly everyone, overcredulous so that without investigation, they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending. And so we have this, we have this issue that is very relevant for us today. Because we're in community with one another, we discuss the latest, we discuss the current events, and oftentimes the names of the elders come up into that. And oftentimes within the groups, there are those that might be disgruntled or offended or just a little bitter or this or that, and they begin to speak about the elders in a way that's not appropriate. And because we're just so hesitant to just shut somebody down and to end a topic we just start out with sympathy, being sympathetic, being an ear, and that turns so quickly into reception of the accusation, and it so quickly spreads to even the bitterness or the disapproval of the leaders that the Holy Spirit has appointed over the church of God. Trapp says, every fool has an arrow to shoot at a faithful preacher. And I remember being that. I remember my pastor Rob just leading and, and teaching and sharing and wonderful things. But I was on the outside and I wasn't really even making attempts to be serving and being a part of things. And I just remember leaving and just whispering with my sisters. He'd walk out to the parking. This is so dumb that they're doing it this way and this way. I'm like, I just knew so much as a 19 year old. I knew just way better than anybody else, of course. You know, but I just remember being a part of that. And then as I was part of the leadership team of Calvary Corvallis, I began to learn about there's a lot more that goes on here than we just know about from the outside. And so it doesn't mean the outside doesn't have valuable perspective. We want to hear from that. We want to know from that. But also we got to be so cautious because even myself, we can be so quick to just shoot an arrow at a preacher of the word of God. To be involved in the leadership of God's people is to be at the receiving end of all kinds of allegations and accusations. To be sure, I've even heard it from many of you guys talking to me, you have a target on your back. And yet the accusation should never be enough to prove the guilt. If that were the case, none of us could stand, none of us could continue. And so as Chappelle writes, the remedy to this, I loved it, give your leaders the same protection that everyone else has. Never listen to gossip about leaders or even serious accusations if it only comes from one person. All charges must be substantiated by two or three responsible people if it is to be considered. How much grief would have been avoided in the church if this ancient biblical pattern were followed? So just looking at some of the different versions and translations of this text, the ESV says, 
Do not admit a charge. And then it uses the language, unless there's evidence from two or three witnesses. So you begin to hear something, and there's no evidence. It's kind of, huh, it's just kind of whispering. It's murmurings. It's grumblings. It's opinions. It's not even really sin. It's just my preference or my method, how I would do it if I were in charge. And, and just, hey, now hold on. You're already starting an undercurrent of division and splitting and grumbling and murmuring and complaining. Man, you read the Old Testament, you read Numbers, you read about Moses and the leadership in the wilderness, and those things were not permitted by the Holy Spirit. Severe judgment came from the Lord when there were murmurings and grumblings and grumblings and complainings and shriekings and cryings, the language speaks of in the book of Numbers, and the Lord defended and fought for his leaders. There needs to be some serious evidence if I'm even going to be considering this. And that evidence needs to have been seen, witnesses, and witnessed and presented by two or three witnesses. The NASB says on the basis of two or three witnesses. New Revised Standard, never accept any accusation against an elder. Except, so there are exceptions, and they have their roots in the Old Testament, multiple spots in Deuteronomy, and that is with two or three witnesses. The witnesses are necessary for the accusations. We have it in Deuteronomy 19. Jesus would take the same principle and use it in church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. When you're going and you're speaking with a brother who sinned against you, go, just you and him alone, and just see if he might hear you and you might be able to gain a brother. And if he doesn't hear you, then take with you two or three more so that every word may be established, so that there could be witnesses about what's going on here. I even appreciate how the pagans had this uh, as a standard. When Paul speaks in Romans, uh, rather in Acts chapter 25, verse 16, and he says, as the Romans are hauling him off to prison, he says, it is not the custom of the Romans uh, to deliver. You know, I I should really, as I'm preaching the word of God and delivering it, is it Paul that's speaking it, or is it actually a Roman guard? Someone turn to Acts 25, 16, find it for me. This is what happens when you're just... Slicing and dicing the, uh, the scriptures and bringing them out for, for use here. Acts 25, 16. I just want to make sure that I'm quoting Paul uh, because my mind is thinking perhaps. Um, shibidi-boo. Festus laid Paul's case. Okay, so it would be um, Festus laying the case. See, it's just good to read your Bible. Just good to know what you're talking about. Um, so I believe it's Festus that's reading it, is speaking this out uh, as the case is being presented. It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. Uh, Jesus would even say, it's written in your own law, that the testimony of two men 
is true. So it's so important to have the witnesses with the evidence for the accusation against the leadership of the church. In verse 20, it says, And those that are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So let's say that evidence is substantiated, and sometimes it is. The two or three witnesses are there. There's the basis. There's the evidence. It's received. And then there's a point where there's to be rebuking or reproving, correction in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. And so the principle here for us is that we must have courage to rebuke sinners. And even more so, we must have courage to rebuke sinners within leadership. So that the rest and those that are remaining could have occasion to fear and to revere. And so it could be understood that this public exposure of the sin is within the sphere of its offense. Oftentimes, I believe it just goes right in with Matthew 18. If this brother is confronted on his sin and he repents and he confesses, then it it ends there. But if there's not the repentance then that goes even more public. Public rebuke is a response of public sin. We don't take and make much of things that are matters of privacy. John Calvin again said, Paul is here speaking of sins that give rise to public scandal. For if any elder commits a fault not in this category, it is clearly preferable that he be admonished privately rather than openly accused. However, if the elder was to refuse the private admonishment, then the church would have no other recourse than to take the matter which was private and make it public. Okay? Now, we have an example of some of this public sin being rebuked publicly, and it's with the uh, apostle Peter by the apostle Paul. And we see that in Galatians 2.11. It says, now when Peter, and and by the way, uh, we didn't have the the words, they got deleted off our screen today. So if you want to turn to Galatians 2, we're reading a number of verses up through 14. So Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the matter of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So you have a sort of awkward situation here. You have Antioch, the missionary hub, with the Apostle Peter, who was in the inner circle of Jesus himself. And you have Jews coming up from Jerusalem that are trying to put a bit of a yoke of legalism upon the early church. And and Peter feared these Jews. And so he began to be a hypocrite, preaching a gospel of grace, but living a life that that would kind of push away the Gentiles and the uncircumcised, and it contradicted his message of grace that he'd been proclaiming earlier. 
And, and Paul saw that it was causing Barnabas and the others to be led away and to be led astray. So this public scandal that was happening was rebuked publicly in front of everybody. And so Paul, uh, he followed even his own call to Timothy and that those that are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. And we see that that occurs whenever there's rebuke of sin. It causes others to be afraid to sin as well. That happens within our own church as we go through times of church discipline and we see the goodness and the severity of God good to those who are following after Christ and walking in the spirit and hating the deeds of the flesh and, and severe towards those who are living according to the flesh and bringing idols in front of the Lord Jesus and letting themselves follow after those things we see that when it's time to correct the idolatry in men's hearts, that it causes the rest of the church to, oh man, well, I wonder what would happen if I was in, if I was in this and that. And that's a good thing because it causes us to run from sin. It causes us to want to follow hard after the Lord. It's the same with little kids. They see their older brothers getting disciplined and they're like, well, I remember when big brother Russell used to do that. I don't want to have any part of the discipline dad's going to bring down on that, right? I mean, it happens with, within our family situations as well. And so it happened with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts chapter 5. They were called out and corrected for their dishonesty in their so-called generosity. And when the Lord smote them or struck them down, uh, we see that they, the rest of the church feared greatly. It caused everybody to put their giving in check and their heart of giving in check as well. So the principle here is sin among leaders in churches is not to be shielded or covered up or hidden away. It's to be publicly rebuked. First of all, in the presence of the elders that the rest of the elders may fear. And if that doesn't uh, bring about repentance, then in front of the church so the rest of the church may fear. When an elder sins in a public manner, he or she is to be, well, not she, because there's no she elders in our church. Uh, They're to be rebuked in a public manner as well. And so the principle and application will bring warning towards others. In verse 21, we read in our text today, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. So this all falls within the text concerning accusation and correction towards sinning elders. And so Timothy is just, it's insisted by Paul that he is fair and true and right in this. Because within churches and within leadership, there are people that pull more weight, have more clout, have more time, things like that. It just happens. And it's easy for us to play, you know, the good old boy politics. And it ought not be so. It's very severe, Paul says, that we obey in these ways. And he brings kind of that two or three witnesses of heaven. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the rest of the council of heaven that's there before the judgment of Christ, the elect angels in heaven the chosen messengers in heaven, we need to observe these principles of correction towards leaders without prejudice and without partiality. Many churches are spineless 
and they show favoritism and they're swimming in politics and they don't do what the Bible says. And these are hard things. Discipline is hard. Never seems pleasant at the time, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12 or whoever the author of Hebrews was. Says, but afterwards it yields those peaceable fruits of righteousness. It never feels good when you're getting the swat on the buns, you know? And yet through time it brings about good fruits of righteousness in your life. Discipline's never easy. In fact, when Paul spoke to the Corinthians about disciplining a very tough situation, he says, I'm putting you to the test in this to see if you will really obey the Lord in everything, not only in the easy things but also in the difficult things. And it never fails. Whenever we even teach on discipline within the church, there's pushback. There's pushback. Whenever we actually move forward in discipline and we have the scripture before us and we lay it out clearly, there's pushback. We don't like discipline, but it is the means of grace that the Lord uses us to draw us, his children, back to himself. It shouldn't be denied. We want to be obedient to all things in the word of God. Donald Guthrie said, when dealing with sinning elders, a spineless attitude is deplorable. So you can pray for us. We don't want to be spineless among the leadership, among the elders. The idea that punishment is punitive, punishment is purposeful, and punishment is restorative is a theme of the Bible. And we trust the Lord in that. There's a purpose behind discipline. It's for the good of the one sinning, whether they're an elder and a leader or just a person in the church. It's good for the good of that individual. It's for the good of the church. And it's good for the good of the testimony of Christ in the world. Who wants to be a part of a church when the church is behaving in the exact same way as the rest of the world out there? What does it have to offer me? What good is this? The church is to be separate, holy, sanctified, set apart, and disciplined within a local church, even of its leadership, moves the church in that direction. Interesting, in Deuteronomy 13, if you want to flip back there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 13, 6, says, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter... The wife of your bosom or your friend who is as your own soul. So he's speaking of deep relationships that you have. Could be your father. Could be your mother. Could be your son or your own daughter. Could be even your own wife. Could be your best buddy. And they come and secretly entice you saying, hey, let's go and serve other gods. In other words, let's not obey Jesus and let's go do what Jesus forbids. All these different gods that are spoken of. Verse 8, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. So there's no partiality here, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. What's, what's the purpose of this? This all seems a little bit severe. 
Well, it goes on to say, it's so all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. This is extreme stuff we're dealing with. These are life and death matters, matters of eternity. And the Lord desires within his wonderful plan of discipline that everybody else fear so that we don't do that anymore. Our culture doesn't believe this. It resists it. That's why parents spare the paddle. And that's why churches spare the discipline. But it is to be done, and it's to be done without partiality and without prejudice. In the Greek, without prokrima and prosklisis. No partiality in discipline. Or maybe you're an NIV reader today. Yours says, do nothing out of favoritism. So easy within a church where there's sentiment, there's family ties, favoritism, it can prevail. Judgment goes out the window. And there has to be necessary objectivity in nearly every relationship the elders have in the congregation. Just as within our own family, it's not healthy, it's not good to have favorite children. We see that in the life of Jacob with his 12 children. As he favored Joseph, it did not go well for that family. It's same within the church. Jesus led by example in this, and that even the questioners called him teacher, saying, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. James speaks so wisely that we should not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. And he goes on in chapter 3 of James to say, wisdom from above, if you're seeking wisdom, has a whole lot of great and goodly truths. It's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy and good fruits, and that wisdom is also without partiality. And so we saw the church's role and what we ought to do with accusation. And you know, I would just encourage you to develop the practice in your life to be so quick to stop the gossip and the busybodies within your midst, within the core groups, within the 242 groups, within the coffee dates and this and that. When things begin to come up about people within the body, church leadership, even people within the community and the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and just says, man, this is this is, this, is, this, is, this is a tasty trifle, you know, this is a tail-bearing, this is, this is gossip, this is, there's no evidence to these accusations, and I, you just feel the Holy Spirit just causing your heart to beat, and, and just causing, you know, you to sweat a bit, just, just be, just develop the practice, just hold on, hold on, you know, I, I just, not to be a part of this conversation, I think you just need to go and talk to this person who sinned against you, or, you know, there's no evidence, man, you're just spreading gossip, just, man, you need to just, just be quick with one another and just have the relationship with one another. We're not offended at that. Like, oh, yeah, well, I needed that, man. Thanks for stopping me, man. Oh, gosh, how did that happen where I just was totally, you know, doing this guy down and just throwing him under the bus? And, man, let's pray. Let's pray for this person right now. You know, let's pray for our leader right now. Or we know there's something going on in the church and the leaders involved. Let's just pray for them. Let's cover them in prayer. Let's fight for our shepherds through prayer and encouragement. You know, I have a buddy that, um, you know, it's interesting in ministry. I could name a number of accusations that are just insane that have been brought against me. No evidence, crazy stuff, 
And then even this week, I got a call uh, of an accusation that was brought up, clear down in Southern California. I'm like, I don't even, who, who I, I don't even know who, you know, who cares, you know? Um, I mean, I look tan and everything, but I haven't been hanging out down, you know, whatever. But, uh, but it, you know, not that big of a deal, but just, hey, what's Rory? Like, man, and just a good friend of mine just said, you need to call him. You need to call him. But, you know, it's good because I called the same guy, and I asked her a question about another guy and his marriage and something that I'd heard, and he's just so good to just say, you know what, you just need to call him. You got a question about, just call him. Ask him. Talk to him. So that'd be good. That's a good practice. Hey, just call him. Call her. You know, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of this gossip and being a busybody. And we know that the word has to say about those things. Putting it down. It goes on to say, moving on from accusation, going towards ordination. Then our, in our ordination, we need to be careful. Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And so when we are recognizing the giftings and the commissionings on an individual, man, there's just to be great care, great caution, great examination before going into the laying hands on elders, laying hands on deacons. Better to move slow in these matters than to move too fast. Once you lay hands on somebody, which is so easy and exciting to do, it's really hard to then remove that person from that place of leadership. And so those that are in some sort of candidacy right now and you just know that we're praying and working through, just got to be patient with us because we want to be careful, as Paul tells uh, Timothy Timothy regarding these matters. Uh, We want to have absolute impartiality, impeachable honesty, and great integrity recognized in these individual who are uh, rising up into leadership and stepping up into this service. And the laying on of hands we see as a New Testament principle that just shows affirmation towards these individual, that we see that his life oozes with character as we studied in chapter 3. We notice that flagrant sins of omission or commission are not found in these individuals, so they'll be able, finally, to be set into the office. Guthrie says appointment of deacons in the sense of his uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says uh, that they are to be first tested and to be found faithful. Then they can be serving as deacons. Guthrie says appointment of deacons as of every office in the church demands careful scrutiny. So there shouldn't be ordination without investigation. And with that, this interesting phrase that follows nor share in other people's sins. It seems to be that if there's an indifference in leadership laying hands on individuals, that they become partners with the sins of that individual when they fall short. And so that's why it's so good to just move slowly, examine the person's character and integrity, even more than their giftedness or their personality traits before moving forward with leadership and laying hands on them. Uh, The NASB reads, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for their sins to others. Keep yourself free from sin. I was encouraged by a sermon uh, by Charles Spurgeon in the last two days. And uh, let me just read a little what he encourages regarding this laying hands on people hastily. Paul tells Timothy, do not be in a hurry to lay hands upon these men so as to endorse their claim, but to let them wait a while 
while they were tried and tested, because if he allowed them to take office in the church and they committed faults or follies, he would be responsible for them. And everybody would say, we wonder that Timothy should have sent out such men as these. And so he encourages us, how can or how do we oftentimes share in other people's sins? Well, first of all, the word was towards Timothy in the appointing of elders. And Spurgeon had a great word for that that's good for us elders and elder candidates coming up. He says, as to how we can become accomplices in other people's sins, the preacher first must say to himself that he will be such a man if he's not true to his trust. If he shall teach false doctrine, or if teaching the true doctrines, he shall teach them erroneously. If he shall keep back unpalatable truths of God, if he shall allow sin to pass without reproof, if he shall see a great deficiency of spiritual life and service and not point it out, if in brief he shall be an unfaithful servant of Christ and his hearers shall uh, thereby be kept in a low state of divine grace, inconsistent with their profession, and the unconverted shall be hindered from coming to Christ. He will become a partaker in other men's sins. Indeed, I know of no man who's more likely to fall into the fall indicated in the text than a minister of the gospel. But then even for all of us, if you will, all of those who are not um, pastor, pastors or elders, how can you share in other people's sins? And how is this a danger for you today? Spurgeon, I'm just going to give, what was it, five things from Spurgeon, six things from Spurgeon, very quick and briefly, that were convicting to me and I think are good for us to hear as well. How, how I, might I be sharing in other people's sins? He says, first of all, we can, all of us, be partakers of other men's sins by willfully joining with them in any act of sin and doing as they do. That seems kind of obvious, right? They're in some act of sin, and we willfully unite ourselves with them in that sin. And I would just ask, just as I was studying and praying this morning, and I accidentally set my alarm clock for an hour earlier than I meant, and I was just lay, laying in bed, and I was just praying over these points that I'd read. Will you guys just pray with me over these things? Just how in my personal life, in your personal life, might you be sharing in people's sins? How might you be willfully, think of your job situation, think of your friend situation, think of your community situation. How are you willfully uniting yourself with them in these sins? Maybe you're hearing the proverb in 114 that the wicked man would say, hey, cast your lot in amongst us. Let us all have one purse. That's what the wicked man says. He says, hey, join us. The more the merrier, we'll be able to take more of a plunder in our sinning. It'll be more fun. It'll be more effective. And Spurgeon warned against this. He says, if hand joins with hand in sin, there's a multiplication of its guilt. For each man who has helped to lead a fellow creature into iniquity will have his own transgression increased by the transgression of that other sinner. So man, don't partake in other people's sins. Man, that is so dangerous to willfully join in with them and multiply the guilt for each man who's helping. Secondly, also seems obvious, and yet we can find ourselves doing this by tempting them to sin. By tempting them from, to sin. By being a part of leading these innocent, pure minds towards sinful thoughts, 
This happens so often in our speech and in our joking and the double entendres and the insinuations, the innuendos that are almost worse than open profanity by leading others and tempting them into sin. Third thing that Spurgeon just encouraged us, by misusing our position. Maybe you've been given position and authority at your job. And man, just such a warning to you that as you are employing people with souls and eternities, are you asking them to do anything that is, that is not above board, that is not that of integrity, not that of virtue, not that of good character? And maybe you just kind of say, oh, this is just how we've always done it. Man, be so cautious with that. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, and the words that you're teaching your children, and the way you're leading your children. Fourthly, by associating with ungodly men as though we did not think that there was as much harm in them. You know, I think we just don't trust the Lord in this. Is it good to be around non-believers? Absolutely. The scripture speaks about, man, we need to be eating with the non-believers. We need to be spending time with the non-believers because then we're light and salt in their midst. And yet too much of that can also be a detriment and begin to cause us to lose our saltiness and our light to go dim. Just had Psalm 1 on my heart lately. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Do you walk in the counsel of the ungodly? nor stands in the path of sinners. Where are you standing? Where are you hanging out? Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But rather, oh man, just beautiful, but rather that your delight would be in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Two last things that Spurgeon just encouraged us in, ways that we tend to uh, share in other people's sins by joining a church that holds unscriptural doctrines or that does not act according to apostolic precedent. And sixth, by not rebuking men for sinning if it is our duty to do so or by not doing all we can towards their conversion. That's a bit convicting, isn't it? How might I be sharing in my community's sin? Well, when I have a sphere of influence and I'm not using it to proclaim the gospel. Or if I have a sphere of influence, even within my core group, my discipleship group, that we've joined arms together and said, let's live for Jesus together, but we beat around the bush and we don't call sin a sin, a spade a spade. Then we're sharing in those people's sins. And I love just how Spurgeon put it, for instance, by living in certain neighborhoods and never trying to bring the gospel to the people in that neighborhood or by not maintaining our consistent Christian walk as the separated people of God. I just hope we just bring our hearts before the Lord there. Say, Lord, how have I been sharing in people's sins? And of course, as we discuss that, I don't know if it's much of a discussion today. You're just listening. And thank you. You're doing so well. Why, we ask, why should we not share and other people's sins. Well, we've got enough sin on our own, that's for sure. I've got enough to like need to be purged away by the blood of Jesus, so I don't, I don't need yours, thank you very much. I don't want to share in yours on that one. Also, the duplicity and the multiplying of that guilt. But I think the most of all, it robs the glory of the Lord. It robs the Lord of his glory. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It quenches the Holy Spirit. Here's a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, and I just pray we press it into our hearts today. 
Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is near and keep it still awake. I need a principle within of jealous godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it, feel it near. I need the first approach to feel of pride or fond desire to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire that I from you no more may part, no more your goodness grieve. The filial awe, the fleshly heart, the tender conscience grieve. If to the right or left I stray, that moment, Lord, reprove and let me weep my life away. For having grieved your love, oh, may the least omission pain my well-instructed soul and drive me to the blood again, which makes the wounded whole. Lord, give us a tenderness to sin. Such an innocence that, you know, I just love my son Russell and he's so innocent. And he's at that age where he's being exposed to things and he just, he sees it right now as an 11 year old. Something comes up, he's just like, that's inappropriate, isn't it, dad? You know, oh, dad, oh, oh, you know, and I just love that. You remember back when you used to do this? You know, when was the last time you did that? When something, you know, there was just something like, I don't need to see that. I, I don't need to hear that. When was the last time? Just that innocence. Lord, give us that tenderness and innocence that the littlest bit of sin would cause us to just move towards sorrow and prayer. Augustine wrote a short prayer. Oh, Lord, save me from other men's sins. Put this down among your other confessions. Oh, Lord, I confess unto you my other men's sins. I mourn over my other men's sins. I repent of my other men's sins. I grieve on account of my participation in other men's sins. Lord, give us godly sorrow that brings repentance. Goes on to say in our text today, hope you're still there, 2 Timothy chapter 5, keep yourself pure. Do not share in other men's sins. Keep yourself pure. Guard your purity. It's as if the apostle said, make sure you appoint pure men and keep yourself pure in the process. Now, it's interesting that that phrase, keep yourself pure, almost spurs on a thought here in verse 23 that it's been known to be parenthetical or it's like put it in parentheses. You might even in your Bible just kind of add parentheses because it, uh, I remember I'd be talking with Kevin sometimes and and he'd be like, oh, I want to talk about something. I'm like, well, let's finish this thought. And he goes, no, I got to say it now because I'm going to forget it, you know? And you guys know how that is, right? You know, you're like, no, if I don't say it now, it's going to go out of my brain. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's like, okay, hold on, hold on. Keep yourself pure. Oh, by the way, by the way, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. It's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit, bit of an aside here. It's in line with keep yourself pure, but also, hey, you know, I remember this was going on in your health. I've got some helpful tips for you in your health, but there's also something so contextual about it. Uh, it's on purpose because Paul has in his mind purity, integrity, and Timothy's physical frame. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on here. For some reason, Timothy was drinking only water, and we need to be so cautious that we don't 
throw in why we think that was and let that affect our interpretation of the scripture. Because guys, I hear this all the time. All the time. If you were at the men's conference, we just heard, you know, we love him, but Ken Graves just used this and he threw in a little bit of Ken Graves there. Just a little bit and, and not calling him out in any bad way. It's just we do this sometimes. And I've heard so many even Calvary Chapel pastors throw out, why did Paul tell Timothy to take a little wine? Because he knew drinking wine was bad. And so he had to be told it for medical purposes. Now, there was just some wrong in that and some right in that. And maybe you caught it, all right, in, in the way that it was said. Contextually, well, we don't know. We don't know why Timothy wasn't drinking. We can't just eisegesis and read in our opinions on this. Perhaps it was from a conviction in his heart not to drink wine. And that's good. And that's great. But we can't just throw that in there as if we knew that about Timothy. Perhaps he just preferred water. I'm just more of an agua guy. Okay? That's not bad either. Perhaps he didn't like the taste of wine. We can't take a hard stance as to why this would be. But we do know that there's a context here from chapter 4 where Timothy is ministering to a group of ascetics who are saying that by not eating and not drinking certain things, you are more holy and righteous before God. And Paul has already addressed asceticism to Timothy and so he would say, Timothy, just in case there's a little bit of inkling in you towards this, this ungodly, unholy asceticism, it's okay to have some wine, okay? You've got some stomach issues. This is a medicinal text. You can't make a case for the liberty or against the liberty, except, hey, somehow he was drinking wine. Someone went down to the store and got the wine for him. Someone might have seen somebody down around that store as he was getting the wine for him, and yet there was still the need to get some wine and to take, take it to your stomach. It's okay. And even the early church would speak about how, man, there's, there's some good qualities of that. You might consider it if you have some stomach issues. Drink a little wine. Listen to the apostle Paul here. But Guthrie says, Paul wishes to make clear that purity is not synonymous with abstention. Back into this ordination, verse 24 and 25, we're going to wrap up here. Don't worry, I can read the room. <laughs> Deep stuff, huh? Verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Do you get how that last verse was kind of a parenthesis? Like, keep yourself pure. We're talking about elders. We're talking about the accusations. We're talking about the ordinations. And by the way, hey, you know your tummy issue that you've been having, you know? I know that Rolaids hasn't come out yet, but, you know, there's wine. and So anyways, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Um, Hughes says the detecting of sin and faulty character is easy with some people, but in others it's a very subtle task. Sometimes it's right there out in the open. Sometimes it's so evident. Sometimes right away, you're offended. Your conscience is offended. There's something sick and wrong with this individual. And then there's other people, they just seem as pure as the driven rain. And you're just maybe not able to discern. There's something, you know, but man, there's just something about this. The way he's looking, the way he's talking, the way he's shuffling his feet, the way he's folding his hands. There's something here. 
We can't go on a witch hunt. We're just going to trust the Lord here. We're just going to trust the Lord. We're just going to use discernment. We're just going to pray. Sometimes it's just, oh, it's out there in the open, man. I'm a total raunchy sinner. I'm a pagan. I'm a heathen. And then there's the guy that, you know, it's just different. It's just different. But it'll show up later, and there needs to be prayerful discernment, especially if this person desires to be an elder. We're good at spotting the gross sins, aren't we? But the subtle, unseen sins may be even more damning because it resides inside near the heart. Conduct always affords the best guide to character when appointing elders. Some things are clearly evident. And some sins follow later. Look at verse 25. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. As we have the worship team come on up. Man, good works are good. Good works are good. When they are driven by the gospel in our life. When we've been transformed from the inside out by the spirit of God. When he reveals to us his word. He's moving us toward these good works. These are beautiful, wonderful things. The fruits of the spirit just flowing out of us. Love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those things are, are obvious. It's also obvious when the opposite, the works of the flesh, are evident. It's obvious when adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like all of those things, now they may remain under the surface for a while, but they begin to reveal themselves in various ways. And so what do we do? I feel like the word from the Lord in one thing is what he says about the wheat and the tares. You don't just go through just ripping everybody up and grabbing them all out, and destroying the good wheat with the bad tares. You just trust the Lord as you're prayerful and careful. He's going to reveal the tares in due time. And there's this air about it all. As I was reading Townsend today, there's this air about verse 24 and 25 that, you know what, elders are going to make, they're going to err, they're going to make mistakes sometimes in appointing men. Sometimes we've got 1 Timothy chapter 3, you know, we've got these things, we've got character, we've got integrity, we've got these things, and, and we don't know maybe what's going on behind the scenes or underneath the skin, underneath the heart, in the heart. But we trust the Lord, and there will be a final judgment when the tares are revealed. And when genuine wheat is revealed, and there's this aspect that drives us back to trusting the Lord. Why don't we stand together? As we close, let me read this passage in the Phillips translation. Kind of helps wrap it up the last two, two sessions that we've been in this passage. Elders with a gift of leadership can, should be considered worthy of respect and of adequate salary, particularly if they work hard at their preaching and teaching. Remember the scriptural principle, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Take no notice of charges brought against an elder unless they can be substantiated by proper witnesses. If sin is actually proved, then the offender should be publicly rebuked as a salutary warning to others. Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the holy angels to follow these orders with the strictest impartiality and to have no favorites. 
Never be in a hurry to ordain a man or you may be making yourself responsible for his sins. Be careful that your own life is pure. By the way, I should advise you to drink wine in moderation instead of water. It will do your stomach good and help you to get over your frequent spells of illness. Remember that some men's sins are obvious and are equally obviously bringing them to judgment. The sins of others' men are not apparent, but are dogging them, nevertheless under the surface. Similarly, some virtues are plain to see, while others, though not at all conspicuous, will eventually make themselves felt. So as we close today and just have that word before us, we can see how prone we are towards a fallen condition. How prone we are to be gossips and busybodies. Just hearing this tasty little trifle and accepting it and eating it, just pondering it. Man, we love to hear the latest juice, especially, oh, the scandal of what's going on in leadership. Oh, and we can spread it. And But just as much there in that realm, there's the fact that there are leaders that sin and leaders do sin. And they struggle and they stumble. And that this is even happening, that this is even a concern. It shows, man, we have fallen. We have fallen from God's original intent of relationship and community. The fact that we would, as pastors, tend to share in people's sins by either not preaching a true and a right doctrine and rightly dividing the word of God, or we share in people's sins by laying hands on guys that are going to go out and sin, and then we're guilty of that guy's sins. We're, we are, uh, even as pastors, we can not correct when correction is needed, or we can show favoritism. Oh my goodness. Man, we can be prone to just miserable failure. The fact that we as people could hang out with non-believers, and, and in such a way, man, the extent is causing us to backslide, it's causing us to lose our saltiness. It's causing us to be dim as lights. We're causing our children to stumble by sharing in their sins. We're causing our neighbors to stumble. We're not being lights and preaching the gospel and confronting sin in our community. All of these things show that we just have a deep need for the Savior. The Savior that Paul in the First Timothy says, Jesus Christ, our hope. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we can just come to him today and acknowledge that we are so prone to sin. These are relevant cautions for us today. And as we close in a song, we just bring our failure before the Lord and we receive forgiveness in his mercy in our times of need. Let's receive it afresh today. The blood that Jesus shed. We've taken communion. We've received today forgiveness of sins that those sins atoned for by the blood of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Let's receive that afresh today as we close. Go ahead, Johnny.